0: Today's topic is The Flood Hello my radio friends Thanks for tuning in today I hope you are well and are aware that you are very much loved by a Heavenly Father. And I hope you are aware of the blessings He has given you. I'm happy to report that there's an increasing listener base to this program, Give Me the Bible. We know this because a number of people have let us know how they have found the program and how much they've been enjoying it. Why don't you let your family and friends know too, so that they may hear about God's holy word as well. Today we shall consider a subject which has been the centre of a lot of debate. It's about a worldwide flood often referred to as Noah's flood. Many people, including some Christians, express doubts about the flood, and some disregard the whole Bible because they cannot believe that such a thing ever happened. On the other hand, despite the popularity of uniformitarianism and humanist teachings, there is an increasing number of scientists who are abandoning uniformata- uniformitarianism in favour of catastrophism, and accept in principle what the Bible teaches on this subject. But the Bible is a book that can be trusted. And even if the idea about the flood doesn't fit with our world view, then probably our world view needs changing. Today, I want to present to you four lines of evidence that support what the Bible has to say about the worldwide flood. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 6, and starting at verse 6, it describes the situation existing on earth about 2,000 years after creation. It says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, All the time. And in the following verses, it tells how God was grieved that he made mankind in the first place, and then of his intention to cleanse the earth by getting rid of all the wicked people. But not everyone was wicked. There was one righteous man, Noah, and God determined to repopulate the earth through him and his family. Instructions were given to Noah to build a very big boat called the Ark and save a remnant of humanity and creatures. The Ark was to be a floating refuge as God was going to cause a great flood which would cover the whole earth. You can read the rest of the story for yourself in Genesis 6, 7 and 8. A 120 years later, and people lived much longer back then, when the ark was finished, and soon after Noah and the animals were inside, the flood began. In Genesis chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, is recorded what happened. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the seventeenth day of the second month. On that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. This was no ordinary localised flood. There was continuous rain for more than a month, and besides that, water gushed up from underground. Now you might wonder how that could be. One author who has written on this subject suggests that there was a collapse of large parts of the earth's surface filling the vast underground caverns and reservoirs with rock and soil and thereby forcing the water to the surface. The same author suggests that the areas which are now seas and oceans were where the Earth's mantle subsided. Even with the Earth as we now know it, National Geographic has estimated that if all the snow and ice should melt, there could be a rise in sea level of up to 70 metres. That alone would wipe out most of the big coastal cities in the world. No doubt there is still plenty of water under the surface of the earth, besides what is in the atmosphere. In 2014, my wife and I visit the city of Dordrecht in the Netherlands, Holland. A man named Jan Hubers has constructed a life-sized replica of the Ark and made it into a museum at 150 metres long. 25 metres wide and 15 metres high, it is an impressive structure. Inside there are three stories and there are live and static animals and displays. I found the amount of space quite amazing. Now, what evidence is there to support the cataclysmic worldwide flood? The first evidence is the Bible itself. The Bible is the oldest written record about the flood. There is nothing older. Old documents hold a great deal of veracity. And of course, what the Bible says about that and all other kinds of things is held in high regard. The biblical record has proven to be correct, time and time again. The accuracy of the Bible has been verified by archaeological diggings, history and scientific findings. You can trust the Bible because it is true and it's true because it's the Word of God. Another evidence to support a worldwide flood are the words of Jesus and the words of the Apostle Peter. Jesus had no doubts about the flood. He spoke about it as an unquestionable fact. Note what he said in Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39. He said, As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, People were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. The same is given in Luke chapter 17 and verse 26. The apostle Peter wrote in Second 2 Peter 2.5, for if God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Now he goes on to say some other things that are not quite related to this, but Peter spoke of the flood and of Noah without any questions whatsoever. He spoke Of it as a fact now there are some who say oh that's just a myth it has no place in the Bible that's a very dangerous attitude it's like saying I know better than God when people try to fit God into a man-made mold they are overstepping the boundaries God is not a man he is God so much more intelligent and greater in every way than human beings. So, who is man to place judgment on God? Now, I want us to consider two other lots of evidence. Firstly, cultural, and secondly, scientific-based evidence. It's very interesting that many cultures around the world retain the memory of the flood in their history. Several Native American tribes have global flood stories. One is from the Choctaw tribe and tells how long ago men became so corrupt that the Great Spirit destroyed them in a flood and only one man survived. In Hawaii there is the legend of Nu'u who made a great canoe with a house on it and filled it with animals. The waters came up all over the earth and killed all the people and animals that weren't in the canoe. Ancient Chinese writings referred to a violent catastrophe that occurred on earth and a flood covered the highest mountain. The Toltee Indians of ancient Mexico have a story of a few men who escaped the destruction of a great flood that covered the highest mountains. In the story told by an Aboriginal group in northwest Australia, a man with his wives and a dog battle their way to safety in a canoe as a bird flies in front of them with a leaf in its mouth. One famous flood story was discovered in 1853 on tablets unearthed in ancient Nineveh. In this epic of Gilgamesh, the Babylonian Noah is called Uptanashtim. This epic has many similarities with the story of Noah's flood. These stories, and hundreds more, have very striking similarities. This evidence supports the Bible's account of the flood. But the Bible gives a true account of what happened in the flood. But we're not expected to believe the Bible without any other other evidence, as well as global flood stories of long ago in various cultural groups there is very strong scientific evidence which is supportive of a worldwide flood. But before we consider this evidence, we must remember that the classic uniformitarian view is that the processes that caused certain landforms and rock strata have been slow and steady, taking place over extremely long periods of time. What the Bible teaches and is supported by certain catastrophists is that the processes were very violent and very quick. I've had the privilege of visiting the Grand Canyon in Arizona in the United States of America. It is a very impressive long, deep hole in the ground. It's 446 kilometres long up to 29 kilometres wide and 1.8 kilometres deep. The Colorado River runs through it. The walls of the Grand Canyon are made up of different coloured layers of different thicknesses of rock. Most uniformatists, that's evolutionists, believe that the oldest layers are near the bottom and the youngest near the top. But unfortunately for them, some of those that are considered to be the older layers are on top of what are supposed to be younger layers. And then there is an even greater problem where a 50 million year old layer is completely missing. Now we're going to have a little break here. And we'll go on
1: shortly. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. Just over in glory land And I don't expect to stop Until I shake her hand She's waiting now for me In heaven's open door And I can't feel at home In this world anymore not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Just over in Saints on every hand are shouting victory. Their songs of sweetest praise drip back from heaven's shore. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then, Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door And I can't feel at home in this world anymore
0: That was Jim Reeves singing This world is not my home. Well, we were, just before the break, we were considering um, the Grand Canyon which is a huge scar in the face of the earth and has been of great interest to many geologists and geomorphologists. But uh, some things just don't quite add up. And one of them, of course, is the fact that some of the younger layers are below some of the so-called older layers and um, also... There are other things like a layer is missing, a 50 million year layer completely missing. And then there's an even greater problem. Let's say that layer X took 120 million years to form. During that time, it was acted on by weather, water currents and other erosional forces. It should be worn away in some places so that there should be valleys and it should have an uneven surface. But that is not the case. The layers are very smooth, like what happens when a vast amount of fast-moving water carries earth and rock that settles out as the water loses momentum. It is unfortunate that those who do not believe the Bible account of the Great Flood gloss over these issues I've just mentioned. They just expect the general public to swallow their theories without question. And as far as I can see, this believe-it-because-we-say-so attitude is very prevalent in our society. Just about every documentary about nature keeps on shoving the slow, millions of years development story down the throats of those who are prepared to be brainwashed. Even such well-respected commentators as David Attenborough should be questioned. Now this raises further issues, which when examined provide evidence to the fact that there once was a mighty worldwide flood. Are you aware that at least 75% of rock at or below the surface of the earth is sedimentary? That means that the rock was formed by the action of water. In many of the rocks and layers of rock, there are fossils, creatures and plants that were buried in mud before the mud hardened into rock. The algas, that's Katajuta, in the Northern Territory, are made up of conglomerate, smaller rocks that have been cemented together. The River Murray Cliffs, and underneath the River Murray or the Murray Plains, is mostly sandstone covered with limestone. If you can get close to the River Murray Cliffs you will see that in the sandstone are millions and millions of fossils. These fossils were once living creatures that were buried in mud. In the cliffs, some of the most prominent fossils are sand dollars and scallop shells. The interesting thing is that there are fossils to be found across the world, including high up. For example, in the Brackner Gorge, in the Flinders Ranges in South Australia. The other interesting thing is that the vast majority of fossils are complete. This point is very important. Dinosaur fossils, which fascinate many people, have been found in various places but in almost every instance, are complete. Now this is very interesting because it shows that the dinosaurs and any other living plant or creature for that matter was buried very quickly, not slowly as the uniformists would have us believe. So what happens when an animal dies? Scavengers come in and eat the flesh, and the bones get scattered. The same occurs in water. A fish, for example, if it dies and sinks to the bottom, will become the victim of crabs, shrimps and other scavengers, which eat the flesh, and it's not long before the bones are scattered. The demolition of the dead creature will occur over days or even weeks, not over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. When the scavengers are finished, the skeleton is hardly ever complete. It's ridiculous to think that the dead fish would lay on the seafloor for hundreds of years, waiting for the silt to build up enough to cover it. By then it would not be complete. It would be scattered all over the place. No, the simple fact is that fossils are the petrified remains of creatures that were buried very quickly, in seconds or at least minutes. Fossils have been found confirming that the burial was very rapid. For example, some fossils have been found like where a fish was in the process of eating a smaller fish. That shouldn't have taken millions of years. My experience with fish is that they swallow their food in seconds, not millions of years. Fossils have been found where a female was giving birth. That process does not take thousands or millions of years either. Fossilized eggs have been found. If the fossilization process took millions of years, the eggs should have hatched. It is convincingly obvious that the burial of practically every living organism that eventually became fossilized was very quick. No. The evidence is strongly in favour of there being a catastrophic flood moving huge quantities of soil, gravel and rock and burying these creatures in moments. I mentioned the Grand Canyon before. Probably the canyon was mainly carved out as the flood water drained off the land. The Colorado River is not very likely to torn not very likely to have torn out such a huge gash in the earth's surface as the river's water flow is much too small. If you've ever observed the soil, rock and sand that gets deposited after there's been a flash flood in a creek, you would have noticed something very interesting. You will find that the rocks, gravel and sand are deposited in layers, depending on their size and weight. If you dig down through a pile of this kind of debris, it's quite obvious that the heavier, larger particles are near the bottom and the smaller, lighter particles are near the top. You can do this experiment yourself with a plastic bottle. Just get some dirt and put it in the bottle, say half full, then top up the rest with water. Leave an air gap at the top and shake the bottle vigorously, then set it down. And you will find that when everything has settled, that the layers are obvious with the heavier material on the bottom and the lighter particles in a layer on the top. Not far from our farm when I was a child was a place called Supermine Hill. It has since been renamed and is now Shell Hill. The hill is probably nearly 100 metres high and is composed almost entirely of oyster shells. People have wondered why there should be such a large concentration Of oyster shells at that particular spot. The question is not easily answered from the evolution point of view. On the other hand, if one considers the power of the flowing water during Noah's flood and the deposition process of similar sized oysters, all which would have weighed about the same, then it's easy to see how such a large conglomeration could occur. It is very possible that the face of planet Earth was much different before the Flood than after. It is very likely that pre-Flood there were no huge mountain ranges reaching kilometres above sea level like like what we have now. The profile of the Earth would probably have been much gentler It has been suggested that the Earth's axis may have been vertical instead of 23.5 degrees off vertical. It is quite possible that there were no oceans as we know them nowadays and the upheaval back then would not have been just a time of flooding but a time of surface movement on a continental scale there was probably intense volcanic activity. Because of the volcanic dust in the atmosphere, it's very likely that the whole earth cooled down a lot, possibly giving rise to what is known as the Ice Age. Now please don't quote that this is fact. These are suggestions by various authors of what they thought could have been. Friends, we've barely scratched the surface regarding science-based evidence about a catastrophic worldwide flood, but I would like you to know a lot more about this subject so you will have a good foundation to understand what the Bible records in Genesis chapter 6 to 8 is true. So, with that in mind, You've only heard part one of the subject, the flood, today. Next week, I would like to share part two with you. We must stop. Our time is gone. But I look forward to your company again soon. But for now, I wish you peace and joy and God's blessings.